Let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, and answer a question. Should we be convicted, concerned, about the effects of the tsunami that ravaged 13 shorelines around the Indian Ocean? Genesis chapter 1, let's begin with some verses right there. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Amen. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And you can go on to read in this chapter that God separated the waters from the dry land, and the waters He called seas, the dry land He called earth, and God is still doing the same kind of things today. Four weeks ago today, the blessed God of heaven, the Lord Jehovah, Creator of heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, shifted a couple plates underneath the Indian Ocean that caused a displacement of water of 15 meters, 45 to 50 feet, straight up. A displacement of water like that underneath the sea created a water pressure through the ocean that in the middle of the ocean was only a foot high. A tsunami is a very interesting wave. It's not a tidal wave. Tidal waves have to do with tides, or tidal waves have to do with the blowing of wind from hurricanes. This water isn't whipped up by winds. It's by a shifting of the earth. And it races across the water at 600 miles an hour. It happened just off the coast of Indonesia, but it went 2,800 miles and hit the coast of Africa and killed people in Somalia. But out there in the middle of the Indian Ocean, it was only a foot high. You would have hardly noticed it in a ship. But as it approaches shore, and the shoreline wedges up to the water surface, the water stacks up and slows down. And so by the time it hit the shore in Indonesia, it was 50 feet high and going 35 miles an hour. Which is not all that fast, but it's a lot of water. And it came ashore, and there are 226,000 confirmed deaths. And there's 2 million people without homes in 13 nations. You go into Walmart, you go into Bilo, you go almost anywhere, and people want your money to send to relief funds to help the people that have survived. The orphans, the widows, those that don't have jobs, those that don't have houses, over there in 13 nations that surround the Indian Ocean. What should a Christian do? What should we do? How concerned should we be? Should we take some of our general fund and send it to relieve these people. We haven't done so in four weeks. Why haven't we done so? We have lots of funds. Can we defend our position in not doing so? What is a Christian's duty from the Bible? I love the Word of God. It'll answer us on every question if we'll study it. Now, you can't find the answers without studying it, but we want to think about them. And I praise the blessed God for his marvelous works, that he can shift the earth a little bit and cause water to race across the Indian Ocean and stand up on the shores of Somalia and wash houses away at 600 miles an hour. That is one incredible use of water. And I hope that we know that our God is in charge of all the water on this planet. He sends the rain and he withholds the rain. 
He binds up the seas and puts the shores as their borders until he says, I'll let a wave go over just once to remind people what I could do if there weren't shores. The Lord is in charge of all water. But let's first of all remember that Christians know more about charity and love than anyone. Right. I am only going to hit a few high points. There is an extensive outline. And, and maybe you'll see it on the internet when Matthew gets done with it. But there's an extensive outline. I just want to hit a few, a few high points. Christians know about love and charity. We know how to give because the founder of our religion was given by his Father in heaven to be the Savior for our sins. Amen. And we emulate that. First John chapter 4 says, Herein is love. And then after explaining the love of God toward us, we then are to love our brothers. And so Christians know about love. We know that charity is the greatest grace that a Christian can have. Faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. We know that pure Christianity is taking care of widows and orphans in their affliction. We know that from the Bible. We know that in a true church of Jesus Christ, there is a welfare system that takes care of those who can no longer take care of themselves. Do all of you know, and remember, some of you know, and I hope you remember, that in a true church of Jesus Christ, when a, wit- a qualified widow reaches the age of 60 and meets the other qualifications of 1 Timothy 5, she is to be supported fully by the church. Right. Fully. I don't mean 20 bucks a week. I mean her room and board and living is supplied by the church. Now, that's a welfare system. That isn't Old Testament Israel. That's New Testament churches of Jesus Christ. But the Lord isn't vague about it. The qualifications are stringent. They're strict. And they're found in 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 through 16. Christians know about charity. The Bible says many times that if we don't consider the poor, or if we stop up our ears at the crying of the poor... The Lord will stop up his ears when we cry, when we're in trouble. Don't let anyone tell you that we don't know about love and charity. But we're going to practice our love and charity the way God tells us to, not the way Hollywood tells us to, or any other medium in this country. A next point, a tsunami is an act of God. Can we agree with that? No one created the tsunami, except the Lord God of heaven. They can blow off a hydrogen bomb under the ocean, and it's not going to create a tsunami like you just saw and read about. God made a shifting of this planet's crust and moved a lot of water. A lot of, you got, you, you need to go read about the length of that, of that fault between two plates and the amount of movement. It was a large amount of water. It was a large earthquake. But it's an act of God. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 8 and rejoice in the great God that we worship. Those poor people that are wondering what Allah was doing to them, or were wondering what Vishnu or Hare Krishna or anyone else was doing to them, Jehovah makes tsunamis. It's an act of God. And it's a great act of God. You know, we read this morning, and you can hardly read the Psalms without saying that we're to seek out His wondrous works. Because they're great. We don't wish for the death of anyone unless it's God's will for that. 
but we love his power that he's able to demonstrate in the natural creation and in his providence of what he has created. Look at Proverbs 8.29, speaking of wisdom. It says that wisdom was with God when he gave to the sea his decree. Oh, God's given an order to the sea. Do you think the sea obeys it? You know the sea obeys it. That the waters should not pass his commandment when he appointed the foundations of the earth. Did God give a new command for the Indian Ocean four weeks ago? You know he did. Look at Psalm 93. Brother Jeff doesn't want me to leave this one out, so I want you to hear it. You know, Brother Jeff reads the preparatory email, and he thinks about what verses does the Bible describe... Does the Bible use to describe God's control over waves? Remember when Brother Jeff had a little Bible study for us before a family night supper a couple of years ago about the amount of rain that God can dump when it rains and you wonder how all that water is held up there in those clouds? Remember? Many, many, many tankers. Psalm 93, verse 4. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, yea, than the mighty waves of the sea. The Lord's mightier. The Lord can stop them. The Lord can send them. The Lord is great, and the Lord Jehovah is our God. He can send storms to do whatever He wills. Look at Psalm 48. Psalm 48 and verse 7. Thou breakest the ships of Tarshish, with an east wind. Oh, you mean God might send negative events with his water? He breaks ships with his east wind. Here it is described. Tarshish was a seaport, and it was known for its sailing vessels, but God's able to break them when he sends the wind too strong and contrary to them. Acts 28 helps fill us in on some of that, doesn't it? And Acts 27, when the poor apostle Paul and his traveling companion Luke We're on that ship with 218 poor Romans trying to make it to Rome. And the the winds were contrary to them. Remember Jonah? Was the Lord able to make a great storm, then make a great calm? Did our disciples experience the same thing on the Sea of Galilee? The Lord's able to do those things, and he does them. A tsunami is an act of God. What we believe in this church is a little different than what most others believe. And that is that God also does terrible things, not just kind things, to this earth. They think that God is a sugar daddy in the sky who owes us all cotton candy for as long as we live. Or, he's a sugar daddy in the sky who has sit back, has sat back, and is just watching us from a distance. But the Bible tells us he does terrible things. When Job was reduced to nothing, and his health was reduced to terrible... His wife came to him and said, curse God and die. What did he say? You speak like a foolish woman speaks. Shall we not receive good? And he had. He had been blessed abundantly. Satan knew it. You've blessed everything the man touches. You gave him the touch of Job. Forget the touch of Midas. Midas never had any touch. Job had the touch. Joseph had the touch. Everything they touched was blessed. He said, shall we receive good at the hand of God and not evil? Are you trying to tell me that your idea of God, you speak like a foolish woman. And if you listen to a woman today, guess what opinion you're going to get? 
that God only does kind things and how terrible the tsunami was. God chose to send that tsunami. I'll tell you something. All six billion of us on this planet deserve to die under a tsunami and worse. He just reminded us of his power and the vulnerability of every one of our lives. But it's a foolish woman that reasons God doesn't send terrible things. And Job answered his wife, and he answered her correctly. Look at Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45 and verse 7. Yes, you need to turn your Bibles. We want to know our Bibles. I want you to know this verse. Isaiah 45, 7. Speak God speaking. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. The evil there is not sin. It's the evil day. It's trouble. It's destruction. It's judgment. It's not that God creates evil. God never tempts a man by putting a desire for sin in him. God doesn't need to do that. we got a big enough desire ourselves. But he does create evil in the way of trouble. And a tsunami is an act of God, no matter how terrible it is. Look at Deuteronomy 32. Please, keep turning quickly with me. Deuteronomy 32. Is God just? Is He right? Is He holy? In these terrible acts that He sends on the earth. You know, the tsunami was nothing compared to the flood. The waters kept mounting up day after day after day after day. Not 50 feet, brethren. 45 feet above the highest mountain. Now that's something to worry about. And the whole planet drowned, except for those that were in the ark. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. Moses speaking of God. Look at what he says. I've got to go to 3. How can you read 4 without 3? I will publish the name of the Lord. Ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Now, do you want to tell me the tsunami was wrong on his part? After Deuteronomy 32.4, it was an act of God, and God is able to send good and evil on planet Earth, and all we deserve is evil. It's in his kindness and long-suffering that he ever sends anything good. Tsunamis are to punish wicked men. When events like that happen that are acts of God and men die, it's not because it was an accident of nature. It wasn't just a circumstance. It wasn't coincidental. It was planned by the sovereign God who controls the seas. And all men deserve to die a miserable death. And God has created all things for himself, yea, even the wicked, for the day of evil. What nations were affected? Well, there's, some, there's many verses that I could turn you to on some of these. I need to turn you to one before I answer that question. Let's go to Luke 13. Luke 13. Tsunamis are to punish wicked men for the glory of God. We have got some pretty strong hate mail in the past when we tried to point this out with the destruction of one of our... with the Columbia and with some other events that have happened to our nation. But look at what the Lord Jesus Christ said. They don't know the Jesus Christ of the Bible. Luke chapter 13, verse 4. Jesus is speaking 
or those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay. But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. That is God, the Lord Jesus Christ, reminding us that we are all sinners and we stand before God and we exist and we are preserved by sheer mercy. And whenever he withdraws his mercy, it's what we all deserve. Eighteen died when a tower fell on them. And Jesus was asked, were they worse sinners? Not really in the Lord's estimation. He said, unless you all repent, you're going to likewise perish. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did likewise perish about 40 years later. What nations were affected by the tsunami? Thirteen of them ringing the Indian Ocean. Somalia on the coast of Africa. Sri Lanka that used to be Ceylon at the tip of India. India itself, Burma, Thailand, Malaysia, and Indonesia were the ones mainly hit. Now, I'm, I'm going to show you some Bible, but let's just think about these nations. They're not, they're not exactly our neighbors, are they? <laughs> it, you know, the ball's only so big. It's 8,000 mi- 8, miles through and 24,000 miles around. But if you were to pick nations that were as far away from us as could be on this ball, you, we just listed them. Right. That's as far away as you can get. They're not exactly our next-door neighbors. The, the predominant religions... There's three. There's hardly anybody else in any of these nations. Three religions. Do you know what they are? Islam, Buddhist, Hindu. What do they think of Jehovah? They have no use for him at all. What about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? No use at all. What about the word of God? No use at all. Amazing. All of them deny those things that are dear to us. They are positively, in their religions, anti-Christian. And those nations are anti-American in many ways. The Bible, which tells us Jehovah's will, shows what God's people did to nations that worshipped other gods in the past. Now, God hasn't called us to do that. He has not called us to do that, and I want to make that very clear. The rules God gave to Israel under the Old Testament were different than the ones he's given to us. Under the Old Testament, the church and the nation were the same. And so the rules to the nation sound like they're to the church. But the rules to us under various nations are different. We only have church rules. We don't take the sword and go kill men because they don't believe the same thing we believe as the Israelites did in Israel. But when you read the Old Testament, you see what respect God had for false religion. No respect at all. And he said, if the Israelites don't kill the Canaanites, the land itself is going to vomit them out because of their wickedness and their abominations that they commit. A nation is only a blessed nation to the degree that Jehovah and Jesus Christ are its God. Amen. I love Psalm 33, 12 and 144, 15. Blessed is that nation whose God is the Lord. Now, that's a blessed nation, and that makes all the difference in the world. The religion of Jesus Christ is peaceful. The Bible tells us to to, to live peaceably with all men as much as lieth in us. But I want to remind you something about our king. He's not a peacemaker. 
When the Bible calls our Lord Jesus Christ the Prince of Peace, it's because he made peace with God for us. But he said, think not that I came to bring peace on earth. I came to bring a sword, and that sword will be in a family between family members. That Lord Jesus Christ said in prophecy in Psalm 2, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. That is the Lord Jesus Christ that the Bible teaches. It teaches that the Lord Jesus Christ is on a throne wielding a rod of iron and dashing the nations in pieces. When the Lord Jesus Christ came and the angels announced peace and goodwill toward men, that was peace and goodwill toward the elect in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what your new versions all say? Peace toward men of goodwill. It's God's goodwill for his elect in sending the Lord Jesus Christ. Pagan nations are without excuse before the Lord God Jehovah, and he considers them that way. Psalm 19 tells us, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. The heavens show that there is a creator God far superior to Allah, Vishnu, or Buddha. And they are without excuse. Let's look at Romans chapter 1 for all of your children to be reminded that God says of pagans that they are without excuse. All men are without excuse. God has left a testimony of himself in the natural creation that if a man goes out and considers the immensity of the universe and the power of the elements, he knows there is a God with eternal power and a Godhead. Psalm 19 tells us that that message goes into every language because it doesn't need to be interpreted. Anyone can go outside and realize the formation of that sun, the moon, the stars, the immensity of the sky, the seas, and all of it testifies to a creator that's got enormous power. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For the invisible things of him, that is of God, our Lord, Jehovah, our God, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There is no excuse to go worship, talk to, pray to, or memorize verses from some pot-bellied Buddha. There is no excuse to think that the moon god of the Arabians is your creator. There is no reason to go to Mecca and to stand around and kiss a black stone that fell from heaven that's called a meteorite, folks. A black stone that fell from heaven and pretend that God gave it to Abraham and Ishmael. They are without excuse. I didn't say that. The Lord said it. I'm only representing him. Any intensity in my voice is only on his behalf because I am nothing. And were it not for his grace, I deserve their same fate. Were it not for their grace, I wouldn't have read the skies any better than they do. Were it not for his grace. But pagan nations are without excuse before God. That's part of our foundation. Let's keep going. God made the poor. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 22. Proverbs chapter 22. Why is one nation rich, another poor? 
Why is one person rich, another poor? You know what? When they're arrogant, they say it's because our nation works harder. I'll grant you that, but that's a secondary cause. The principal cause, the first cause, the first mover of that fact is the fact that God made them different and providentially arranged things that they would be harder workers. And then he blessed their efforts. Because the Bible says that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the prosperity to those that work hard. Time and chance happeneth to them all. But the Lord makes the rich and poor. Look at Proverbs 22.2. The rich and poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. And so when we find poor, the Lord made them. We've talked about an act of God in sending a tsunami and now we see an act of God in creating some men poor. Just in, the, in his providential choice of their circumstances. And listen, we ought not to bark against that nor complain against that. If we have anything, we have more than we deserve. Amen. If we're not in hell at this moment, we've been given more than we deserve. Right. If you got to eat today, you've been given more than you deserve. That's right. And so we ought to thank God for that. Jesus said... You're always going to have the poor. Now, I want, to, I want to start, you know, this isn't perfectly organized. I tried to organize it, but once in a while i got to jump ahead of myself. You know, there was, a, there was a very precious bottle of ointment broken and poured on Jesus' feet. Right. When that bottle was broken, orphans died. Because they didn't get the food that that money could have bought. And who spoke up and was worried about the orphans? Judas. Judas Iscariot. And why was he worried about the orphans? Because he held the bag and he was a thief. And he, he regretted that that money wasn't in there for him to pilfer it. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, you're always going to have the poor, but you're not always going to have me. And all I want to say about that right now is two things. There will always be poor people. And second... Jesus Christ showed us that there are priorities. And worshiping Him is more important than feeding someone. I want to remind you that the Lord Jesus Christ once called for a flood that covered this earth and suffocated every man, woman, and child. And He has sent many other disasters since then. We are dealing with a holy God and we are all sinful rebels. And we deserve to be treated that way by a holy God. There will always be poor. Many nations, especially in Africa, and notably Hindu, Muslim, or Buddhist nations, are very poor. I have links at the end of this outline when you want to look at it that give you the per capita income. I mean, it's just incredible how poor those nations are except for Malaysia. Malaysia is by far the most prosperous of those. That's where our brother lives, on the island of Penang off the coast of Malaysia. It's terrible. They're so poor. But you know, their religions are so superstitious. How can a man ever think if it weren't for American companies going over there and creating jobs for those people, they'd be backward, more backward than they are. Because the superstition of false religion. What nation on this earth has more cattle than any other nation on earth? India. India has more cattle than any nation on earth still. I had looked that up. I had taught that 20 years ago, and I wanted to make sure it was still true. It's still true. China's catching up, but they eat a little bit more meat than India. <laughs> India's pitiful. You know, they, they'll starve themselves to death with a cow walking down the street, and they salute his uncle. Right. 
because they think it's, it's their uncle that's come back as a cow. God gave those nations resources, but he didn't open their understanding and heart to know how to use them. Do you know that the Bible tells us in Isaiah 28, and I, I've mentioned this before, but the, the ability, the knowledge to know how to use each kind of grain right. and what it's for, how to plant it, process it, harvest it, was given by God to Adam. Amen. Adam did not walk through the Garden of Eden. I wonder what this weed's for. Let's smoke it. <laughs> Let's grind it. Let's bake it. He, Adam didn't do any of that. Come on. He wasn't a caveman. He didn't go around with a club looking for a rabbit to beat. He was Adam. He named all the creatures. And he knew all those grains. And God gave it to him. But God didn't give it to all men. Some, some still think it's for smoking. God made those differences. We are not superior. But by the grace of God, for any ability, any blessing, any opportunity that we have. God is, God is behind all of it. God made the poor, and they'll always be poor. Now here's where, here's where financial charity comes in in the Bible. Financial charity is first due to your family. You are first to take care of your family. And that's more important than taking care of someone in the church. Taking care of someone in the church comes second. Your family is first. Where would I go to prove that? First Timothy. Five. First Timothy chapter five. Turn there with me, please. The first rule of the Bible teaches us about, when I say charity, I mean giving money to help someone that's poor. Giving money to help someone that needs food, clothing, shelter, or emergency medical care. Not cosmetic surgery. Not a doctor's visit that they don't really need. Food, clothing, shelter, and emergency medical care that's life-threatening or close to it. Because that's what the Bible teaches. But notice in 1 Timothy chapter 5, this is the passage about widows. Here's where we have the, the qualifying restrictions on what kind of a widow gets fully supported by the church. We want to look at verse 4. If any widow have children or nephews, let them learn first. I thank the Lord for his word. He tells, he tells me the order of these things. Amen. Let them first... Let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. Paul, to Timothy, about a church taking care of widows, says, First, if there are any children, or if there are any nephews, if there are family members, they should be taking care of that widow first, not the church. Thank you, Lord, for telling me what order it comes in. I'm not smart enough to figure it out if he hadn't said first. Then we come to verse 8. If any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, immediate family, it's your job to provide for your big family, and especially your immediate family, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. We're worse than those pagans that I've just been talking about briefly. If we don't take care of our own big family, then little family, broader family, immediate family, our duty, family first. Not the church. Verse 12, uh, verse 16. Verse 16. 
If any man or woman that believeth have widows, let them relieve them. And let not the church be charged that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. A widow indeed is a widow who qualifies by God's restrictions on a true widow. And I'm not, I can't go there. That's not for tonight. We'll do that sometime if it needs to be done. But right now I wanted you to see from those three verses, 4, 8, and 16, obviously our duties for financial charity to someone who can no longer help themselves is first family before the church because it says don't let the church be charged. Let the nephews, let the sons, let the believers take care of the big family and the smaller family. The wide family, the immediate family. I don't need to turn you to other verses, do I? The Bible says a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. That's money that could have otherwise been sent to a tsunami relief fund. It could have been sent to a brother preacher in some other country. It could have been given to the poor saints fund of a church. But the Bible expects you to hold some of that back for your children's children. Are you with me? Right. I can't. It's Obviously. You wouldn't have any if you gave it all to the poor saints of the church if you thought that was first. Families first. There's lots of verses, brethren. i, I got to race on. Christian financial charity is second to the poor saints in your local church. The ones that, the one that God has brought into the church, the widows that are right here. Because see, this isn't a national policy for churches. This isn't a worldly policy for churches. This is a local policy for churches. And if God brings us a widow, that comes next. God brings us a widow that doesn't have a family to help her. We help the poor that are in our own midst second after we take care of our family. Does the Lord add to the church those that please Him? Amen. Are some of them well off or some of them less well off? Right. You know, why does He do that? Why does He send some that have great professions and making lots of money and others that don't so that we can take care of them if needs and emergencies arise? God, God makes that choice of who's in any given church. Look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Why were six deacons picked in Acts chapter 6? What was, what was falling through the cracks? What was happening? Lots of widows, and they weren't getting, they weren't getting fed daily Daily ministration equally. The Hebrews were complaining against the Grecians, and the Grecians against the, he- the Hebrews weren't complaining. They were getting the, the Grecians were complaining that their widows weren't getting enough because it was a Jewish church. And so deacons were, were chosen. And what was a, what's a deacon for? Is that for us to put some special chairs over here and let some old man sit there who has a meeting once a month and we say, deacon so and so? Or is a deacon a working job? where you take money and make sure it's fairly distributed in the church. That's what a deacon's for. You know what it's used for today? A flattering title for old men. It makes me sick. You know, a church that doesn't need any deacons will often have six, eight, ten, twelve. I don't know what in the world they do except get together and meet, and since they don't have anything to do, they start talking about the pastor. that's, That's way off this subject. What about tsunami relief? 
Let's get back to that subject. I want you to see in Acts chapter 2 that your second duty in Christian charity is, is, are those that God sends you providentially right in your own church. I read in verse 44, And all the believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men, as every man had need. The all men, there is not all men in Judea, nor all men in the Roman Empire, nor all men in the North American continent. It's the all men that are under description there, the saints. They had all things common. Verse 47 says, Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. And so the Lord would add to that number that treated each other so well, whenever it pleased Him. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not going to spend any more on that. We need to go to number three. You are, you are to take care of the poor and those that cannot help themselves in your family, then in your church, and then in all the churches that you know of. The kingdom of Jesus Christ. The family of God. The household of faith. These are different words the Bible uses to describe it. Look at Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men. That's as God gives opportunity for taking care of poor, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. And I'm about to read you some verses, and we've already learned these from studying Corinthians. When Paul wrote the, the Corinthians in Achaia, and he told them to get their collection together, where was he going to take it? To the, to the poor saints in Jerusalem. Where's Achaia? Is it down the street from Jerusalem? Or is it Greece? It's across the Mediterranean Sea. Weren't there poor in Achaia? Yes. But what came first? After they'd taken care of their families and taken care of themselves, the next object are the saints of the Lord Jesus Christ, wherever you can find them. That comes next. And so they would take that money across the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, to Israel. We're members of a society that is international in its scope. Right. And it's the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the household of faith. It's the family of God. And wherever we find brethren, we owe them our charity third after we've taken care of our family and the poor in our own church. You'll see many more references on that, although I don't have time for many more references. Fourth, Luke chapter 10 Where's your fourth object of Christian financial charity? It's in Luke chapter 10. First, your own family. Second of all, the poor in the church that God has put you in. Third, the poor saints in other churches that the Lord tells you about. Fourth, unbelievers, pagans, Hindus, Muslims that God puts right in your path by providence. And I didn't say that Hollywood or the news media puts right in your living room by the television. Nor does it mean what you could learn at the marketplace if you would have been living in Jerusalem and you had gone to the marketplace and said, are there any orphans in Alexandria, Egypt? Yes, there are. Well, I'm going to send some money. The Lord teaches us what it means when it says, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus Jesus was dealing with a lawyer. Does that surprise you that he'd be the one that would want to quibble about a word? 
Jesus said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. What does a lawyer do with a statement like that, even when it comes from the Son of God? Who is my neighbor? You know what he wanted his word, his neighbor to be? His friends. What did Jesus Christ then tell? The story of the Good Samaritan. And we have a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He is a Samaritan. And he finds a wounded Jew in the ditch. A Levite and a priest has already passed that way and ignored that Jew. The Samaritan finds the Jew in the ditch in his ordinary course of business. He wasn't watching a telethon. Charlie, you're always a good backup there. He wasn't. He was in his ordinary course of business. He was on a business trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, and on his way, there's a man in the ditch, and he needs help. Thieves have beaten him up and taken what he had. So he stops, he pours in oil and wine, he puts him on his ass, he takes him to town, he puts him in a little hotel, and tells the hotel owner, keep this man until he's better. And if it runs the bill higher than these two pence I'm going to give you, when I come back by, I'll pay up the bill. Then Jesus turned to the lawyer and said, Who do you think was neighbor? Was it the priest? Was it the Levite? Or was it that despicable Samaritan? And the lawyer said, The one that showed mercy. The one that showed mercy. See, Jews and Samaritans did not like each other. So if you can think of any nationality or race that you don't like, by, the, by nature, in your flesh, if you were going down the road and you saw one, legitimately with a flat tire or needing help, you would stop and help them if you're going to love your neighbor as the Good Samaritan did. That doesn't mean that we drive around after hours at night looking for wounded people or people with flat tires. And neither did the Good Samaritan. And that point is, that, that's a, it's a very key point. Who is my neighbor? It's those people right around you that God providentially put there. And no matter if it's a Hindu, if a Hindu has been beaten up and left beside the road, you should stop and help that Hindu. If God put him in your path and you're going from point A to point B and he's there in the ditch, you stop and help. It doesn't matter what he believes at that point because God providentially has brought along an opportunity for you to show charity. And the, and the Lord may very well bring along someone that you don't naturally like. Because he really wants to test your charity. And for the Samaritan to help a Jew, that was really testing his charity. The Jews wouldn't even help him. Four priorities God's given us in the Bible. Right. Your own family. The members of your own church. The poor saints in other churches. And those that God providentially puts right in your path. Apostolic Christians raised money for poor saints. When money raising was being done, that wasn't being taken care of within the church, which meant it was money going outside the church. When there was a fundraising in the New Testament, every time, fundraising in the New Testament was for poor saints in other churches. Look at Romans 12, 13. Romans chapter 12 and verse 13. Do you know that just a couple generations ago, you wouldn't know about the tsunami yet? Three generations ago, you wouldn't know about the tsunami yet. 
it would have taken someone by a sail-driven ship to have brought news back that there had been a big wave in the Far East. And it would have taken a long time to get that news even back here. It's just that the the socialist do-gooders want to put that all on TV because it makes them feel good to write a little check off to the Tsunami Relief Fund while they abort the babies of this country. One to one and a half million babies are aborted in this country, but they want to write a little check to that country over there because that way they can have their cake and eat it too. You know, why doesn't Hollywood get interested in the persecuted Baptists throughout the world? Why don't they care about the genocide that's been going on in several African nations for the last 20 years? Because as long as there's Buddhists, Hindus, and Muslims involved, they want to send money in that direction. Do you think they care about persecuted Christians? Show me the Hollywood people that want to care for persecuted Christians. They don't really care about little orphans because they orphan and send to an early grave one to one and a half million every year. Romans twelve thirteen. Here's what the apostolic Christians did. Distributing to the necessity of poor everywhere. Distributing to the victims of tsunamis. What does it say? Distributing to the necessity of saints. Amen. Romans 15. Romans 15, please. Verse 25. fifteen twenty five. But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia. We learn where Achaia was. Where's Macedonia? Same place, Greece. All the way across the Mediterranean Sea. For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. Did it say the poor inhabitants of Jerusalem? Those below the poverty level in Jerusalem? Or the poor saints in Jerusalem? Lord, I love your word. It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. When therefore I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. Notice, poor saints, even across the sea. Were there any poor in Achaia? Do you think that if they had looked hard in Achaia, they could have found some poor that needed some money? But they sourced money and sent it all the way across the Mediterranean to poor saints. 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16, the first three verses. Now concerning the collection for the saints. Was that a collection internal to the congregation or external? In another church. External. In another church. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia. Even so do ye. Galatia is modern Turkey. Achaia and Macedonia are modern Greece. Across the Mediterranean from Israel. So all the churches of Galatia, the churches of Achaia, the churches of Macedonia, Philippi, Corinth, Laodicea, and others in Galatia, were raising money and having it carried by apostolic helpers across the Mediterranean Sea and given to the poor saints in Jerusalem. The collection for the saints, it tells us in verse 1, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store. As God hath prospered him, there be no gatherings when I come. And when I come, whomsoever ye shall approve by your letters, them will I send to bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. For the poor in Jerusalem? No, the poor saints in Jerusalem. 
1 Corinthians 16. Hebrews 6.10. Now, there's, there's a number of verses that I'm, I'm going to jump over because I believe you believe, I trust that you believe the point and the outline will have the extra verses. Hebrews 6.10. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. The labor of love, working hard to help others, but it's other saints that the Lord blesses. Apostolic Christianity raised money for poor saints. Come back to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. I read this last Sunday evening. Verse 32, And the multitude of them that were poor were of one heart and of one soul. Give us all that you have. No. Acts 4.32, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that all of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. Verse 34, Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the prices of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. What every man? The every man of the believers. The believers. Apostolic Christianity raised money for believers. The Lord Jesus Christ will honor charitable giving to believers. Matthew chapter 10, verses 40 through 42. A man will receive a disciple's reward if he gives a cup of cold water to a disciple. Jesus will say, in that ye have done it to the least of these my brethren, ye have done it to me. Matthew chapter 25. The Lord Jesus Christ honors giving to saints. That's all that is mentioned in the New Testament as being noteworthy to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the other is an exceptional item. There's always poor saints. We just need to look. Family, church, other churches, and then those people that God providentially brings along your way. What if you happen to move into a house and there's a widow next door, and she's getting weaker and weaker and she can't cut her grass? I, don't, I hope you don't have to ask anybody. I hope you don't even have to ask yourself, but that you want to cut her grass for her, protect her and take care of her. Because God put her right there next to you. We didn't go looking for widows. You didn't go through the phone book some night and call everyone and say, are you still married? Husband's still alive? God put that widow there. Now, the best passage of all, which I don't want you to forget. Where is it? Acts 11. Acts 11. To, to answer the question with a beautiful case study in the Bible of the tsunami and the effects of it in 13 nations, this is the passage that you want to go to. I've laid a big foundation. I've shown you other verses, and there are more, that tell you about family first, church second, other saints third, and God's providential ones that he puts in your way fourth. But notice, when there is a natural disaster, how God's saints react in Acts eleven twenty-seven through 30. And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch, 
Hold. Hold. Don't read the next verse yet. Antioch of Syria. If you go look at a map even today, way up from Jerusalem, 300 miles, is a city called Antioch of Syria. This is not Antioch of Pisidia, where Paul preached in Acts 13, because the gospel hadn't gone that far yet. Paul hasn't even gone on his first trip. This is Antioch of Syria, and it's 300 miles north. It's not in Israel. It's in Syria. Okay, back to verse 27. In these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief. We have a relief fund here, brethren. Determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. A worldwide dearth. Fundraising in Antioch was for the poor in Jerusalem, the poor saints in Jerusalem, the brethren in Jerusalem, because the Jerusalem church was very poor for a couple of obvious reasons. Many of the members of that church had been there on a visit for Pentecost and had stayed. Second, there was great persecution in that city against the faith. They were poor. That's why there's so many collections being taken for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And part of it was caused by this dearth. Here they are. They were in, you you know there were 15 different places represented in Pentecost, don't you? By reading Acts chapter 2. And then they get persecuted and then there's a dearth. They needed help. But when there's a natural disaster that God sent that affected a lot of nations and a lot of people, fundraising in a Christian church focuses on the brethren. This is the word of the Lord. There isn't a verse in here about searching out the poor in Rome, and there were poor in Rome, or searching out the poor in any other city and sending money there. It was to the poor saints that were in Jerusalem. That was 300 miles away. A K in Macedonia, across the Mediterranean Sea, or a whole lot farther away than 300 miles. Under neither testament did God's people give charity to pagans. Whenever you read the Old Testament, it says about considering the poor. What poor is it talking about? The poor within the nation, which is the poor within the church. So we're right back to priority number two. Under the Old Testament, you still had priority number one. And priority number two was the poor in your nation. And if you go look at any of the passages about the poor, it says, reach out thy hand to thy poor. Thy poor. What's thy poor mean? It's the poor of Israel. The Jewish poor. Even if it was a Gentile that had chosen to live among them, called a stranger, they were to take care of him because it says in the Bible, he is within thy gates. He has chosen to live inside your land and you have accepted him and he has accepted your religion, you'll take care of him as well. But notice, it's all within the nation or the church. Under neither testament did God's people give charity to pagans as a fundraising effort or as a precept. There's much more that can be said. Let me summarize. God has set our priorities for us in the Bible. First, our family. Second, our church. The poor that have needs in our church. Poor saints that we find elsewhere. 
and then those that God providentially puts in our path. I did not plan this at all. And I didn't even think about it until 4.45 this afternoon that I had on my note sheet to tell you about a letter from Galina Barozinets in Russia. I did not coordinate that call. I did not coordinate that email. But an email arrived this week thanking us for taking care of her and her mother and her daughter in a hard Russian winter and appreciating our concern for her with the passing of her mother and our financial care of her by sending that gift that is so small to us but so big to them. How did we run into her? Is she part of our family? Not you're making it hard for me, brother. But, but yes, in a way she is. Is she part of our church? No. And she, Let's say no for number one. No for number two. No for number three. But God providentially brought us a girl that was baptized and was part of our church that had a widowed mother. Widowed by divorce. Or man, left her and hasn't come to see her or done anything for them. Lives in Kazakhstan. So the Lord, the Lord arranged for that, and we did something about it. And we didn't send her a 20. You know, we took care of her for the whole winter. And I want to commend all of you for that. And that was just one example of putting into practice number four. Okay, God has set priorities for us. Family, church, saints, and those that he providentially puts in our path in our ordinary business. When God brings someone our way that needs help. Now, it is not a sin to send money to a relief fund. For the tsunami, if you have covered all of God's priorities for charitable giving first, and you are prepared to do so in the future, there's no way. Because the Bible says this, do good to all men, especially those that are of the household of faith, as you have opportunity. And so if you're just flowing with excess money, and you want to drop a 100 bucks in some tsunami relief fund, you wouldn't be sinning in doing so as long as you have kept your other four goals, priorities that God has set. It is not a sin to not send money to a tsunami relief fund if you are cheerful and generous in fulfilling your duties in the four priorities God gives. If you're stingy in these four that God did set up and you don't want to send to them, you're showing a corrupt heart. But if you're generous in these four, and you say, I'm going to reserve my funds for family, for church, for poor saints, and for the next one God puts in my path, and Hollywood isn't trying to sell to me. That's totally noble in the Word of God. God never set any obligation for His saints, for pagans, on the other side of the earth that are our avowed enemies. Never. Nowhere is that found in the Bible. We should be ready to help anyone that God providentially brings and puts in our path, especially orphans and widows, because the Bible tells us that. And even if they're, even if they're enemies that God brings right in our path, we're going to take care of them. We're going to help them. If we knew of Christians, and I have, I have written Brother Singh twice, if we knew of Christians that were hurt by the tsunami, we would be involved in tsunami relief. We'd be involved in tsunami Christian relief of brethren over there that were suffering. Now, I want to tell you something about that little church. There's only only a few members in that church. 
But they took a collection. Now, I want to, I want to, I want to tell you that God's saints think alike. He didn't send me any outline from a message. But two weeks ago, on January 9th, they took a collection. What'd they take it for? Two Baptist churches in Sri Lanka. One building was damaged and one was washed away. And I've, I've asked him for more information because that kind of thing gets me interested. They sent their, there were, listen, there was a lot of damage on the island of Penang. Do you know what they raised money for? To ship it across the Indian Ocean to Sri Lanka where saints there could get their building repaired. Isn't that precious? That little church raised $2,500 U.S. And some of it was money that we sent. And so he thanked us that he was able to give that he otherwise would not have been able to give. That is a lot of money. That is a lot of money in that country from that few people. But do you know what it was for? And their liberality makes me feel kind of eager to have another opportunity. I hope it does you. That liberality should provoke us just like the liberality of the Macedonians in their poverty should have provoked the Achaia people at Corinth. If I get any information about a church being washed away and it's a Baptist church and it's close enough that we can justify helping them with their building, you know, that is something we could do in tsunami relief. If you're going through Walmart, Bilo, or someplace and somebody corners you, or if they corner you, that, that rubs me the wrong way, but don't ask me my opinion on that. But if you find some place and you want to send off a little bit, you wouldn't be sinning if you're keeping the four priorities God gave you. And you wouldn't be sinning if you didn't send any off because God didn't give you any priority for them. It's an act of God. They're pagans. They hate the, the, the God of the Bible. They hate the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word. And we all deserve what happened to them and God chose that it would happen to them and not to us. He gave us our priorities. We want to keep those priorities. We want to love family, church, poor saints, and those that God puts right in our path in our ordinary course of business. And he will. He will give you opportunities. And when those opportunities come, be generous. Look at that good Samaritan. He messed up his business trip. He poured in oil and wine. He took that man to a hotel. He gave him two pence that was going to hold him for a while. And he said, run up any bill that you need to take care of him. I'll pay it on my return. That is generous. And that's the way we ought to be. May the Lord bless you tonight with this message to understand that God has set priorities for us. The word of God's pretty plain and that we even have an example in our own time in this month on the other side of the earth practicing the very same thing, even though the damage was right within miles of their meeting place. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word and may we please him in all things.